Hey everyone, welcome to the 325th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a fantastic show for you today. We're going to be talking about the Internet of Things getting its day before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We're going to be talking about Amazon's Madam A has a new skill. That's on all those new Echo Show devices. Apple has plans for a watch. We've got a new smart lock, but Kevin is going to tell you to be cautious when planning your next smart lock purchase. We've got an update on the number of connected devices that are in U.S. homes. We'll see how your home matches up. And we've got a new module out there for developers who want to build connected products using NBIoT or LTE Cap 1. And we've got some industrial acquisitions happening. Plus, IKEA has a new speaker. We'll talk a little bit about that. And our guest this week is Leslie Carhart from Dragos. And Leslie is a industrial IoT security specialist. She is an incident responder in several popular hacking incidents. And she's going to talk about what it takes to do OT security and what IT people need to know about this. So it's a really good interview. Y'all are going to learn a lot. Stay tuned for it after a word from our sponsor, B-Squared, and you'll hear from them. But now, let's get this whole party started with a message from another one of our sponsors, Edge Impulse. Join Edge Impulse Imagine, which is a new event on the latest innovations in embedded machine learning for the real world. This event's going to take place September 29th through October 1st, and Edge Impulse Imagine is going to feature interviews with and talks by industry leaders and pioneers, as well as expert-led workshops on building next-generation machine learning solutions. You can register now at edgeimpulse.com slash imagine. Okay, Kevin, let's talk judiciary. Legal ease, yes. And neither of us are lawyers, just to no, be clear. No, and I don't think either of us wanted to be lawyers. I actually did. I studied for my LSAT, but that's a whole other story oh, for another wow. time. I kind of want to hear that story, but I'd rather not. Not now. We'll hear later. But not okay. now. <laughs> so last week, we talked about the EU making some findings related to IoT lock-in, basically. that They were looking at competition in the smart home, and they discovered they had four kind of points and Basically, they were like, these things need to be interoperable. That's the bottom line. They were worried about this. And this week in the U.S., senators on the Judiciary Committee interviewed people from Amazon, Google, and other areas, lawyers, that sort of thing, about antitrust in issues in the smart home and interoperability issues. These were all valid concerns. They're concerns we've talked about since probably the dawn of this show, the interoperability and the fact that depending on the ecosystem, one company could control your smart home, for example. We know that's changing, or at least it's in the works to be changed, which is good. And I don't know if the senators are aware of the Connectivity Standards Alliance. But So, yes, the testimony included stuff related to matter, but there are more issues here. So, one of the big issues that most people are probably focused on is this idea that, because the worst case scenario is like, what if when you're a teenager, you pick an Apple iPhone and then you're in the Apple iPhone, which means you could only live in an Apple-oriented apartment going forward because your apartment's only going to work with your phone. And then like a decision you made all the way back then is like locked you in for the rest of your life. I know it feels super traumatic, but we were actually on a way to get there. Yeah, no. And even in a much shorter time, people feel a lock into their ecosystem these days. So I don't think it's out of, out of bounds to have this you know, theoretical exercise. They were thinking about that. So that's one of the issues they were thinking about that that's related to voice assistants. And they're basically saying, hey, if you pick one voice assistant because you pick maybe one cell phone or one smart device, and that determines the course of your gadget purchases for the rest of your life, that's not cool. Now, Matter theoretically does help with this because with their multi-admin, any device that supports Matter and any assistant that's going to support matter, you can have them talk. You can, you'll be able to switch them out. But they went further and they were like, what if beyond things like the smart home, Amazon's like, yeah, if you were going to ask Madam A to order groceries, they're only going to come from Whole Foods. 
which Amazon also owns, in case y'all forgot. So I think that's a little more overt than what they'd probably do. But I do um, think you're like, no. I don't know. I don't know. Because even if you go to shop for something online, you just, you're probably going to search for it on Google unless you just go to Amazon by default. I typically do both, really. I switch back and forth just to check prices. And Google will funnel you through Google shopping as opposed to a vendor site itself. So it's, it's just in general, it's happening on with their side too. Yeah. And I also think one of the things that this is a consumer harm, but it's not one that consumers see. And that is that some of the bigger players like Amazon really uses its market power as the owner of a huge shopping site. So if a smaller company says, Hey, I don't want to share my smart home data with you. Amazon will say, well, then don't sell your product. We're not going to list your product on our site. So there are lots of ways, you know, looking at interoperability around the devices themselves is good. But I think looking at the power of the platforms and the digital assistants as an, as an entry point, I think the digital assistants are the smartphone of the 2020s, right? Yeah, they're the gatekeeper, essentially. So I, I think it's important to have something there, some interoperability there and some assurances there. As part of this testimony, and I'm going to send a link to it, Jonathan Zittrain, who is, is well known in this space, he's, he's at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, he's a professor of computer science, and he's the co-founder of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. He's very oriented around, he's smart on technical things and oriented around consumer rights. I, I'm a big fan. But he actually gave some testimony, and I encourage everyone to go through in the show notes to read it, but let me just do a quick summary. He has a, he has a section on remedies, and he covers two areas. One is what the government should do to prevent lock-in. Interoperability at the assistant levels is the first, and we're, I think we're going to see that with Matter. He also suggests that the government should subsidize interoperable standards, much like internet protocol is an interoperable standard that built the web. He wants the government to subsidize that at research institutions so we can actually develop some good technology that's not owned by the core companies, the big tech companies. He suggests that the government should acquire smart devices that have an open standard, kind of like the government set standards for IoT device security with the Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2021. Or maybe it was 2020. I think it was 2020. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, time. It's a crazy thing. So he's suggesting that and we should have like open standards for any devices that the government buys, which would prompt these companies to invest in things they may not want to. And thus, it would trickle down to the consumer market. And then he covers the idea of freedom to tinker. So for people who are hardcore wanting to build, basically, the idea here is you would open up the OS of the devices and let people build on those. Right now, you can do that. But what happens is we see a lot of, you know, you see the, the copyright, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act come into play. You see the issues we have around the right to repair. You see issues about closing off APIs. So the question, if you wrote legislation about that, I think is at what layer of the stack do you implement some sort of right to tinker? I was thinking about that very aspect because you and I were just talking about maybe some projects that I might work on, you know, put a voice assistant on a Arduino, for example, or a Pi and see what you can do and how difficult it is and whatnot. The, the tinkering part, the hardware part is the easy part without a non-corporate standard of services. I still have to choose what my device will work with in a sense. And Jonathan actually summarizes, I think this is the best part of the whole testimony bit that he read. He's talking about the competition between these ecosystems is really superficial and it offers the worst of both worlds because the fragmentation is frustrating for consumers wanting to furnish their houses and they end up getting an assortment of devices and apps for each device. And then once they're in that system, each new device has to work with it as well. So they're, they're essentially locked in. So it's like there's pseudo competition because you've got these services that are not truly open standards. All the companies will say, well, we have an SDK. So yeah, it's open, but it's still, it's 
open to use their their standard, if that makes sense, or their service, as opposed to having like the web is a global set of services to transfer email, download files. Those are all standards, protocols, and nobody controls them in a sense. No company controls them. That's what's missing. I agree with you. And that's why I think APIs are a huge battleground that people don't pay attention to. I mean, that is basically how you deliver a service online or through the web. And it's, oof, well, we can get into that, but yeah. it's hard. Yeah, it's it's a very technical thing. And most people aren't, don't need, they shouldn't need to know about it, quite honestly. However, they should know what they're capable of and what they are limited to based on what companies are choosing to do. The other thing is like Google can shut down an API and look at what it did with killing works with Nest. That was basically your ability to, I mean, that was an API call to their servers to get that information. And they were like, you know what? Not going to do that anymore. Right. You're going to build on something like that. It's kind of like building on a, a house of sand. Okay. The other thing that is in this testimony worth talking about, which is, hey, we've got all of these smart devices and smart devices are essentially services. So kind of actually what we're alluding to here. The suggestion that Jonathan Zittrain comes up for how to deal with that, which we talk about all the time, is if, if a company that makes the device or the device loses its services, basically, it should still work like the analog dumb device. So if you have a smart thermostat, Google Kills works with Nest, the thermostat still needs to work, right, as a thermostat in your house. Two, if you're going to build a device that is cloud-connected and works on that, you should have the code in escrow, and you should post a bond to fund the support of that code for a set amount of time, which we've talked about putting code in escrow for connected devices for a while. The challenge there is when you do that, people still have to like take the code and do something with it. And not that's going to be a limited number of people, right? So the bond part is really interesting because it allows them, like with Anki, they had to raise money to continue to support the device, even though they had the code, right? Right, because the, the original company went basically went under. Yeah, so I, I thought that was a nice little additional thing. And then he talks about all of these devices are wonderful tools for surveillance. So we need to have a real discussion about how we want to handle civil liberties when we have so many devices capable of both government and corporate surveillance. So we should be starting to have rules around that, which we talk about. I can't wait to start reading some really in-depth papers about what those rules should look like and how we enshrine our rights in this era. He hit all the major points that we've, the pain points, I guess I would say, that we've talked about over the years. My hope is that they continue to talk about it and we have some actual... Actions? Yeah, action, something, some results. Yeah, so we'll see if this is the, the start of something. Hopefully it is, and it's the start of something that could happen relatively quickly. Because I feel like we've been talking about it so long. We understand some of the problems. We just have to mm-hmm. get people who are coming up with good solutions and implement those. Let's move on. Let's talk about Madam A. The new Echo Show 8, Echo Show 5, and the Echo Show Kids now have the ability to detect when a person is in a room and use that to trigger actions. So now, a couple caveats here. <laughs> but <laughs> I was just going to say. Before we get into the caveats, I'll say the reason you would do this is like, hey, I'm walking into a room, turn on the lights and, you know, ta-da. But here's where the butt's coming. Amazon does this using the camera. So this is not a motion sensor. This is a camera. So you have to have the ability for the camera to actually see in the room. So if it's dark, the it's not going to do well. Two, there is a seven minute cooling off period, which is pretty long between when it might do something. So if you were going to set something up and test it out, you're going to have to like leave it alone for seven minutes, walk in, test it, then walk out and wait another seven minutes to test it again. I, I find that odd. I mean, I don't mind a cooling off period because you don't want a lot of false positives, but I seven minutes just seems like an arbitrarily long time. If you can do video calls on this thing, it's not a hardware thing. Yeah, maybe they, knowing that they have so much data from the cameras about things, maybe they figured, maybe they have data that says people run into rooms in seven minutes is about the right time. I feel like they didn't, mm. this may seem arbitrary, but I bet it's based on past behavior on and what they've learned. And, and if so, that's pretty cool and pretty creepy that they would already know that. Yeah, I mean, 
know. You have a camera. It's... Uh, mm-hmm. Eh. Mm-hmm. Biting my tongue. You're sending the metadata. You're not sending the actual camera images in this case, by the way. So before people freak out too much. Right. It, it can't detect who you are. It's not person detection like to, at the personal level. It's not going to tell which person in your family walked past. It's just somebody is there. Right. If you want to try this out, go for it. I think it's one of those features that I would I would try it out and then see how it works for you based on what you're doing and then see. And just to be clear, it's not in your settings for your Madam A app. You actually have to set up a Madam A routine. And one of the options now is to is motion on to be your trigger event. Yes. All right. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Okay. Apple, new wearable. Tell us about it, Kevin. Yeah. It's no surprise that Apple's likely going to have a new Apple Watch, probably the Series 7, since they're on Series 6 this year. Uh, probably, I would think, an announcement in the next month or two with availability come September. But what's interesting is Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg, who is probably one of the most accurate Apple leakers on the planet, has got an article over at Bloomberg saying some updated screens, performance. Okay, we expect that. But what I found interesting is he's saying that Apple is working on two new features, which at least one would require a new sensor that I can think of. Um, the features would be your temperature, body temperature, and eventually um, your blood sugar levels for people with diabetes. And that is really cool because I know that I just had dinner with somebody last night who was a diabetic and, you know, we helped create like a smart uh, insulin pump for her as one of our CS computer science projects in class. And she's always looking at the latest insulin pumps and sensors and whatnot. So she's actually, as an Android user all her life, is thinking of getting an iPhone now when she heard this news. I mean, that's that's really big for her and anybody else who has to monitor the blood sugar. Which kind of goes back to this lock-in thing. Like the fact that Apple's watch, which is so amazing, only works with Apple's phone, drives yes. me bonkers. Okay, yes. that's it. No, that's fair. That's fair. The backstory here is that I've been trying to convince Stacey to get an Apple phone and an Apple watch, but that's a whole other issue. I have a MacBook Pro, but I, I'm on an Android phone just because I Apple's locking down of the ecosystem really, it's frustrating to me. Totally understand. Okay, let's talk about smart locks. We have a new smart lock from Level. I had the CTO of Level a couple of weeks ago, Ken Goto. He was wonderful. We talked about how to future-proof locks because I think Level's done a really good job of basically supporting a lot of different software-based ecosystems. Now, Level Home now has a new lock. This is a, I guess, the mid-tier, would you say? I mean, they've already had their Level Lock Touch Edition, which uh, retails for three twenty nine. This is non-touch, so it's missing some of the touch features, which the touched one has an NFC chip, and um, it can work with key cards and such. This does not have that feature. It is $249. I'd say it's a more basic, still quote-unquote invisible lock because all the mechanics and smarts are literally inside your door, inside the housing of the deadbolt. Yes, that's the key for level lock. So if you're picturing a smart lock, you're probably picturing something that is a lock and then on the backside, there's a big hunk of battery pack, basically is what it is. (laughs) Even the August lock, which is not a deadbolt replacement, it just kind of is a deadbolt turner. Even that has a big battery pack. The entire lock itself is how the, all the smarts and the motor that pushes the lock, pushes the deadbolt, that's all inside the deadbolt hole that you have. And it fits inside that. So you don't have a battery pack. You don't have anything like that on there. It's a very compelling, it looks just like a normal lock. Yeah. Even the battery isn't in there. I mean, it's a, a small battery that delivers about a year's worth of battery life. Yeah. And it, it's not painful to change. So. It's a pretty compelling feature set. It does not have a keypad, though. So anybody who, like, and a lot of people love those keypad locks, man. Even my husband. I have a keypad lock. Yeah. I was like, do you want a level lock? He's like, you know, because he's very into aesthetics. But he was like, does it have a keypad? And I was like, it does not. He's like, no. (laughs) This and the less expensive level bolt itself, which is $199, has Bluetooth inside. And when you're near the door... Um, well, no, you don't even have to be near the door. I mean, you, from, from your level app, you just hit unlock if you want. Yeah. 
in the in the other one the the touch gives you touching key cards. Right. So if you're in Bluetooth range of the touch and you touch it, it will unlock for you. But you have to have your phone with you or the card or uh, I guess a compatible watch. Yes. Yep. No keypad. You're right. Ultimately, <laughs> TDLR. If you like have a smartwatch that works, I mean, like if I had a smartwatch that I liked, like if my Fitbit would work as my unlocker, that'd be great, but it doesn't. Um, so I would, I would do something like this, but we're getting there. I feel like we'll be there one day. So this is why I'm holding off on a new smart lock. But Kevin, why else should people hold off? <laughs> yes, Stacy's holding off and you should too. I say that with a caveat. Um, if, if you want or you have a current smart lock that works for you, it's got the features you want, go ahead and buy it. But I'm saying most people probably should not either upgrade or buy their first smart lock right now. There's a couple reasons. The biggest one is that the standards are changing. And that is that goes back to the, the CSA and thread and matter. All of that adoption may, in many cases, require new hardware. In Level's case, I should give a shout out to Level because as the CTO said on the interview one or two weeks ago, whenever you spoke with him, they've chosen a, a radio chipset that has Bluetooth, but can be, can work with Zigbee very easily, um, could possibly work with thread. Well, I know there's NFC in the, the level touch lock. So they're well prepared to adjust for the changing standards to adopt those without having to change the hardware. But everybody else, I think without exception, I may be wrong on that, isn't. So if you buy something now, you're likely going to see those manufacturers come out with matter supported locks, thread supported locks, and so on, or NFC, or maybe even ultra wideband. And you may not care right now, but you may in the future, in which case the investment you're, you're spending now, you're not going to get back because you're going to like, oh, I wish I had waited. And I don't want to see people do that. Yes, we are anti that. So what would you say? Like kind of early on or maybe in the middle of 2222? No, don't wait that long. 2022. <laughs> don't wait that long. Yeah. yeah, I think the earliest you can even consider some of these locks that will support the currently new just introduced standards, I would wait at least until 2022. I would hope that by early 2022, like CES time in January, we actually have concrete either announcements, maybe not products, but hey, here's a product that will work with Matter, Thread, et cetera, NFC, work with this watch, work with Apple, work with Google, work with Amazon. That's my hope. I wouldn't do anything before CES. And even then you may not be able to buy anything, but you should know more. And I, again, I don't want to just like poo-poo on the whole smart lock industry right this second, because I had an email chat with Leo Des, who you had in, hooked me up with, Stacy, and he's got a lot of experience in this particular segment of the industry. And he said, yeah, overall, I 100% agree. Now is not a good time to buy one. But realistically, it depends on the use case of what you care about. So wait and see makes sense. But if you want something with a keypad right now, and that's good enough for you, Go for it. He, he actually did. He didn't wait. He bought a Baldwin lock with the keypad and he uses, uh, he uses Z-Wave and Kexta Ring. So if you're okay with that, if that's what you want, again, go for it. I'm not saying everybody should wait. I'm saying you may want to think about your use cases, what the new features and standards will bring. And if you don't care about them, go ahead and buy something. But if you're going to regret this purchase because you're going to feel like you missed out on something when the new ones come out, I would wait. There you go. All right, let's do a segment called Are You Normal? Uh, Kevin, how many connected devices are in No, I am not normal. <laughs> how many connected devices are in your home? Ironically, I just counted that because somebody was asking me that question Twitter in a DM, and I think I had 32. It was just the other day. It was like 31 or 32. Okay, and I have about 65. Uh <laughs> Your house is also twice as big. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the average U.S. household, according to Deloitte, now has 25 connected devices. That is more than double the 11 devices the average household had in 2019. So, and that mm. includes computers, tablets, you know, entertainment, that sort oh. of thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably closer to the 50 then. Oh, yeah. That includes everything. That. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm up there with you then. Okay. There you go. There's four laptops and a and a two desktops on my 
desk in front of me right now. That, yeah, that and you probably have a printer yeah. somewhere. Unfortunately, we do. I'm not a fan of printing, but no, yes. None of us are, but you know, sometimes it's got to be done. There we go. We've got more connected devices. If you go over to, so that's a Deloitte report that came out last week. Parks Associates, which does, I won't say exclusively smart home because they do security and media and entertainment stuff too. But their research says that consumers now have an average of 13 connected devices in the home up from 9.2 in 2016, but they broke it down a little bit. So in their average, computer smartphones, smart TVs, and smart speakers were included in there. And that was part of their connected computing devices. And then they had homes having 1.2 connected health and wellness devices. And then an average of 26 smart home devices. Interesting. One key point out of the Deloitte report, which is interesting to me, more than half or 58% of U.S. households, this is all U.S. data, have a smartwatch or fitness tracker. I don't really care how many households have it, but it does say that 39%, one third, more than one third, own one personally. And that seems low to me with all the years of Fitbits and all the Garmin watches out there and the smartwatches because that's smartwatch or fitness tracker. I think that's normal. I mean, it, it had been, that's a segment of the market that took off among a certain subset, like the wellness kind of focused or, but then with COVID, we saw an uptake in those devices because it had been hovering around 30%, 37%. Oh. So this it is actually seems, pretty good. Seems low to me. Okay. Yeah, not everybody okay. wants to carry a smartwatch. I know. Let's talk about IKEA just released a new product with Sonos. Yeah, we heard this was potentially coming, and it is true that the new IKEA picture frame speaker has been announced this week. It will uh, be available on July 15th, 199 for each one. And I say each one because you can have two for stereo and so on and so forth. You can add as many as you'd like. They do work with Sonos, just like the Symphonic line that they have, I believe. Mm -hmm the lampshades and the bookshelf speaker. So these are a little more expensive than those at $199. Interestingly, these, yes, they are a picture frame and it comes with a piece of art in a sense, like a, like a, and you, and you take the art off. It's not a standard piece of art. It's custom made to fit this. So if you don't like this art, Ikea will have two more options that they will sell you for $20 each. But the default art is like a black, it looks like a black canvas. It's not canvas and some white designs on it. So it's not a traditional picture frame that you can put your own picture in. Uh, perhaps they will have some kind of add on that's a transparent picture frame that you can put your own for customization. But no, you can't yet do that. Or a digital picture frame, which would be super cool for all those NFTs you're buying. Um, oh yeah, I want the I want the code source code for the original web from Tim Berners Lee. He's putting that out as an NFT. It's true. Um, maybe Christmas. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, that's going to go for tens of millions. Yeah, we'll see, Kevin. Okay, uh, we've got a new module out there for folks trying to build on LTE Cat M1 and NBIoT. Modules are important because they make life easy for people who are building hardware by including as much as necessary. So in this case, the module is connectivity plus smarts. You get an ARM Cortex-A7 processor that's very powerful. Um, you get Bluetooth. You get GNSS for positioning. You get serial interface, 4 gigs of flash memory, 256 megs of RAM, and a TPM, which is a it's like a secure enclave. So that's that's good. Security built in. So this whole module is going to be available from TT Electronics. It is the S2 Connect Creo SOM system on module. And yeah, I don't know how much it's going to be. No one ever tells you that until you call them. But it's going to launch in the summer, this summer. And if you're building for cellular connectivity, you're going to want to be looking for something that has this sort of, if not NBIoT, which is very low power and low bandwidth. Um, and then LTE Cat M is higher bandwidth. So you could do some video on that, but you're going to want to look for that because they've sunset three, they're sunsetting 3G networks. So you're going to have to have either 4G or 5G. And 5G right now is pretty battery power intensive. So this is the way to go. Right. 
I like that they added two options from a SIM perspective, because if you're building these devices, you got to worry about a SIM card. So there is a SIM card tray, but it also has a soldered on eSIM. So you don't need to provision with a traditional physical SIM if you don't want. You have a choice there. All right. And in industrial news, Accenture has acquired a company called Umlaut SE. This is a, it's an industrial IoT slash auto. It's going to become part of Accenture's Industry X division. And Accenture has bought a lot of companies. They've bought more than 20 companies since 2017 to build out this area. And it is going in the Umlaut acquisition is one of the largest for this business. And this is basically digital transformation, which if we're being honest is basically saying, Hey, all of the machines, if you're an industrial company, maybe it's shopping shelves. If you're a retail company, all of this needs to have sensors on it and deliver data that we can start delivering insights or getting insights from. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think you just put that one in the show because you like to say umlaut. Umlaut. <laughs> it is nice. Ikea and umlaut. Umlaut. Umlauts are German, I think, not Swedish. Yes, they are. Well, maybe they I don't know. The Swedes do use them. Okay. Anyway, the terms of this deal were not disclosed, but umlaut has 4,000 employees and it has revenue of 340 million euros, which is about $412 million. So it is not insignificant. This is a big deal for them. And if you're interested in industrial IoT, or you just want to understand what's happening with like ransomware attacks, stay tuned for our guest in a little bit, because she's going to be talking about that. But now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast. Hotline. That's right. This week's hotline is sponsored by Very. Are you looking for an IoT development firm that's been there and done that? Very's award-winning team of senior engineers, designers, and data scientists will work with you to get your biggest IoT hardware and software projects fully operational. You can learn more at verypossible.com. Before we get to our question, we have to tell you how to call us. We will answer your calls on the Internet of Things podcast hotline. And when you call us, you will be entered to win a smart speaker of your choice. So get on that, because I got to say, it might be the summer break, but we're not hearing that from that many of y'all. We can be reached at 512-623-7424. This week's question comes from David, who has a question for us about matter. Let's hear it. Hi, this is David from Bethlehem. I had a question about Matter. I know that Matter is going to be supported on things like the SmartThings Hub and some existing hubs, but I was curious if you think that any of the IoT devices that are out there are going to also support Matter or if a whole separate radio would be required. So really for Matter IoT devices, we would have to have uh, purchase new. So just curious if uh, any of the current IoT devices would actually support Matter, or if we'd be looking to purchase new. Thanks. David's calling from my backyard, like like 25 minutes away. Oh, so he could have showed up at your door and you could have helped him out in person. But basically, Kevin, you've already started this conversation with the, the lock discussion, but some devices, the answer is you're going to have to wait and see because some devices will support Matter and some will not. And if a device has been made in the last, I would say, year, maybe two, and it's from a reputable manufacturer, so not like the cheapest device you found on Amazon, and it is a Wi-Fi or a thread-based device already, it will likely support Matter. There's only a couple of those out there. Like Nanoleaf has some thread devices, so does uh, Eve. Those are going to be Matter compliant. If it's Zigbee, it may also be Matter compliant but it may not be. <laughs> Many Zigbee radios can be updated to support thread and thus become matter compliant, but there has to be enough memory on the device and there has to be will from the manufacturer itself, right? They have to decide to do that. In devices that are Zigbee enabled, but are not connected to a bridge controlled, like a Wi-Fi bridge controlled by the manufacturer, will probably not get updated because it's hard to put that software update over a device that you don't control, if that makes sense. But the bridge itself could get an update, which would support this. Yes, but they may not like, so like Apple has said 
that they're going to support Matter on the HomePod Mini, right? Mm-hmm. And Google has said they're going to support Matter on several of their products, including some of their displays, which will act as some sort of bridge device. But like, if you're a connected lock, for example, and you're only a Zigbee lock, it's possible that that would get an update, but it's unlikely simply because that update would have to go through a bridge of some sort. You don't think it could happen through the app for the lock or for the device itself? If the lock is Wi-Fi enabled, I think so. If it's just Zigbee enabled and it connects to my, it's not connecting directly to my phone, it's connecting to a hub, right? So if it's like connecting to my Amazon Echo that has Zigbee, then to update Mm -hmm. it, I have to go through Amazon to get it to my lock. And I'm not sure I'm going to do that, like, right, as a manufacturer. Sure. The tricky part here is that we haven't really heard concrete transition details from any manufacturer, to be quite honest, or any ecosystem. It's just, we're going to support it. And Well, that's not true. We've heard it from like Philips Hue. Philips Hue said they're going to support it over their bridge. The light bulbs will still stay on Zigbee. Well, that was the idea that I had. That's why I said it, it could be updated on the bridge side. Yes. Yeah, but Philips Hue controls that bridge, right? So they can correct. They can know that going in. Yes, as opposed to if you use um, thread devices, for example, in like the Eros on Amazon's ecosystem, it's going to work with Amazon devices only. Is what I've gotten from them so far. Yeah, I'm surprised that Amazon, like all the big vendors, have come out and said what their plans are, but Amazon is staying quiet. Not a peep. No peeps. That concerns me. Mm-hmm. That concerns me. They seem more focused right now on, on building out sidewalk. Like, and in fact, that new level lock that we talked about very early in the show does support sidewalk. Yes. And Ken actually talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago about why he's really excited about that. So, right. And that's a good thing. But they, they seem to be focused on that right now as opposed to working with everybody else. Yeah. Matter does, it feels like an. Feels like it almost doesn't matter. I'm so sorry. Bad state to Amazon. Yes. Okay. Yes. So the answer—it's not a great answer for you—is it's going to depend and wait and see. And your individual manufacturers are going to be making the decision on if they're going to retroactively support this. I'm going to just say to you right now: your older devices probably not going to get it. Your Z-Wave devices—you—if you get support, it's going to be through your hub and. I don't actually think you're going to get it. Zigbee, that's a little easier. You're going to get it. Like Comcast has actually said their smart home stuff. They're going to do a software update and convert their controllers and devices to support matter, much like Philips Hue has said. So that's a known known. Sorry, David. We'll come back to this in like half a year. Just like with the locks, it's, it's still up in the air because, again, we're in limbo now to see what the manufacturers do. Yes. All right. So that concludes this week's Internet of Things podcast hotline. If you want to ask us a question that we can vaguely answer for you, you can reach us at 512-623-7424. And that concludes this segment of the show. Please stay tuned for our guest, Leslie Carhart, who is an incident responder at Dragos. She is talking to us about industrial IoT security. It's a great interview. And before we get to that, We have a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is B-Square. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is B-Square. And I have Tim Shaw, who is back with us. So hello, Tim. Why don't you remind our listeners a little bit about what B-Square does? B-Square is an embedded software and services company based in Seattle. We've been involved in the business of IoT for more than 25 years, and we're pleased to be sponsoring your podcast. Last week, we talked about Microsoft's newest version of Windows 10 IoT Enterprise that's coming out in the fall. The official name is Windows 10 IoT Enterprise LTSC 2021. You may have also heard people talk about it as the next. That's right. And based on last time, it sounds like you think Microsoft's really listening to device manufacturers with this new release. With a new version of Windows IoT that's coming out in the fall, device makers can look forward to a smaller footprint OS, an expanded device portfolio, increased security and lockdown features, and it includes 10 years of product support. They're also introducing eFlow, Azure IoT Edge for Linux on Windows, which I'd like to dig into further today. So why did Microsoft launch eFlow? Yeah, as I mentioned before, B-Square has been in the business of IoT for more than 25 years. And while it's always been the case, 
we find that more and more the world of intelligent devices is a hybrid environment of operating systems where a company might have started developing on one OS for any number of reasons they might end up building devices on more than one system. For example, maybe they started on Windows and later added Android or Linux. Or alternatively, maybe a customer brings them an application that has to work on a specific OS. Microsoft sees this too, so they're introducing Azure IoT Edge for Linux on Windows, also known as eFlow. Okay, well tell me about eFlow. eFlow brings the most useful qualities of Windows and Linux together, giving you the best of both worlds. Essentially, it lets you run Linux workloads and apps on top of Windows device. For example, we see manufacturers working with Linux because startup costs are often lower and there's also a large development community. Linux also allows for containerized microservices, which can be very efficient in the IoT world. With eFlow functionality on Windows, device builders no longer need a second device to run Linux-based code, and IT administrators aren't required to manage separate OS platforms. Windows IoT provides familiar manageability and platform security while enabling execution of Linux investments. I have to admit, I've been involved with Microsoft for a long time now, and I couldn't have imagined this 15 years ago. But Microsoft is clearly optimizing for what customers are asking for, and it's great to see. Can people try it out now? Yes, they can. eFlow is in public preview now. You can learn more on the B-Square website at bsquare.com slash eFlow. Next week, we'll talk about what device builders need to do to get ready for Windows 10 IoT Enterprise 2021. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Leslie Carhart, who is the Principal Industrial Incident Responder at Dragos. Hello, Leslie. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are you? I am well, and thank you for coming on the show. It feels like it's probably been a busy, oh, I don't know, last six months, few it years. It just hasn't stopped, I tell you. It just, it just doesn't stop these days, which is a, a bad, and, bad and good from a perspective of interesting cases and then horrible things happening to people. Indeed. Well, we're glad you're on the, we're glad you're on the job. So Leslie is a, an incident responder, which means she is in the security world helping prevent and respond to attacks of all kinds. And so Leslie, if you want to just get started, do you mind telling us how you got into this business? Because you you actually focus more on the operations side, as opposed to the IT side, correct? Sure, yeah, I, I do specialize on kind of non standard computer systems. So we're on the ICS side of things and the operational and the IOT side of things. And I've been interested in, I, I got interested in digital forensics when I was very, very young. I've been working in IT for quite a long time since I was a teenager, but I've always wanted to do the investigative stuff. I've always had a, a blast, you know, learning about how to take computers apart and figure out what they did and what people use them for. And, uh, you know, I had to work for that there because it wasn't a, a common field for a very, very long time. So I worked my way through a lot of odd jobs, including spending time in the Air Force and working on avionics. So in my odd assortment of jobs and adventures, I, I had a lot of exposure to really non-standard, non-typical computers that are in all kinds of industrial and automation scenarios. And so I got very familiar with working with those kinds of ruggedized and low-level devices instead of just with PCs all the time. And so it was a natural fit. And it's a, an important mission, too, because these industrial computers are everywhere. They surround us every day in our daily lives, and we aren't even aware of them. It is true. And I would love to help educate people about how the industrial world thinks about security, because it feels like on one hand, all of the hacks are coming out now and everyone's like, oh my gosh, everything's connected and all our industrial stuff is vulnerable. But it's not like industrial engineers hadn't thought about security before. So what has changed? It isn't. So a few different things have changed. So first of all, they are aware of cybersecurity. The vendors are, the, the engineers are op and operators are aware. But the, the life of computers in industrial environments is very different than it is in IT. So first of all, the number one priority is keeping the power on and keeping water coming out of pipes and keeping oil going through pipelines and things like that. That's the number one priority and doing that safely without anybody getting hurt. So cybersecurity always comes second, you know, availability, things like that. That's uh, the priority of just getting the data through so that things operate on the right time cycles. 
that's that's number one. So we don't necessarily have the same priorities as IT environments. And also there's this this great cost savings to using commercial IT equipment instead of specialized purpose-built industrial equipment like we used to. It's much cheaper to start using commercial network switches, Ethernet, things like that to send protocols and let devices communicate to one another instead of reinventing the wheel. So there's been a big push over the last quarter century to migrate industrial devices to more familiar network technologies, even if the devices are still different and ruggedized and things like that. So we're adding in more IT elements. And then, of course, since networks are more available and the internet is ubiquitous, there's a great desire to internetwork things for sharing telemetry, sharing control across wide regions, and providing remote access for operators to maintain and repair things without having to drive across you know, great spaces. So there's great advantages to networking these, these systems and these devices. So a lot of what's happening is happening for efficiency's sake and cost saving sake and ability to expand and better operate industrial networks. But at the same time, we're connecting more things to networks and therefore we're incre- increasing attack surface and connecting devices that weren't necessarily intended to ever be networked to IT networks and potentially even beyond that to the internet itself. And I I think there's a good distinction to be made here between this idea of the traditional IT network that connects, you know, our computers and emails and the operational network that is inside a plant, which may be connected to things inside a plant, but may never be connected to the IT network. And what I think a lot of people may not realize is a lot of the IIoT gadgets that we talk about they're actually stuck for maintenance and monitoring on this equipment, but they're not actually on the operational network. They're still kind of to the IT network, you know, physically monitoring the operations, but not on that actual network. Yeah, absolutely. And and so do you think we'll ever have those two things meet? Oh yeah. And they are already air gapping is pretty much a myth these days. Like you talk, you hear about people talking about these wonderfully segmented air gapped industrial networks. And I see very, very few every year. I I work exclusively in industrial networks and I see very, very few, very segmented networks every year. Usually the, the better secured networks have some kind of DMZ between IT and OT. And that has firewall holes in it to, to allow telemetry to go through remote maintenance, administration, things like that. So there's some kinds of uh, traversal between the IT and OT networks, particularly for things like IIT, IIoT sensors, things like that, to share data with the industrial operators and their networks. So there is a lot of crosstalk between even well-segmented IT and operational networks. Real segmentation and air gapping is pretty rare. Do you want to talk about the Purdue model and explain that to people? I'm really torn on skipping that or going into that. <laughs> uh, it's really important, though. It's, it's okay, an important well, concept. Yeah, I, I okay. wish that I wish that IT people had like the the briefest understanding of the Purdue model. It's an academic model, and any academic model is obviously flawed, like the OSI model, whatever else we mm-hmm. use in IT. But the Purdue model is a, a model for how industrial networks are laid out, and it, it basically starts at the bottom with your very very simple electronic devices. It moves up to simple computers, ruggedized computers like PLCs, then up to more familiar computers that are used inside the in- industrial environment, like the operator workstations, and SCADA, etc. HMIs. And then up past that, at, towards the top of the Purdue model is that DMZ that connects into potentially the enterprise or the, the, o, the IT network from the OT network. So there's a DMZ there. Hypothetically, we hope there's some kind of de- secure DMZ there. And then on the very top of the Purdue model is your enterprise network. So that's that's your typical corporate network. So even in this model that's existed for a long time, which is the academic model we use to kind of explain how industrial networks are laid out and what protocols we use at each layer of the cake, still we're acknowledging that there's crosstalk between the enterprise network and the operational network. That's probably going to happen. That's just the way things are typically laid out in 2021. And why is that model important? important and what should we, it's academic, but how can this influence how we think about IIoT security? Yeah. So, so this model helps you understand that industrial networks are incredibly complex. There's a lot going on in them. They're not just like your typical computer network that has some, some routers, some switches and some computers. There are these layers of devices, starting with simple electronic sensors, working all the way up to things like servers, and then into the enterprise network. So at each one of those levels, there's different types of devices that perform critical functions in the industrial network. And even people who are just starting to get their feet wet in industrial should have an idea of what each of those devices kind of does. 
And each of those layers talks using different protocols to the layers above and below it. So you have a lot of different network protocols in industrial environments. And to do any type of security monitoring, threat hunting, incident response, penetration testing, you have to understand that between each one of those layers of the cake, you have different protocols and they do different things and they communicate in different ways. And all those protocols make up the industrial network. So it really gives you an understanding of the complexity and all the different things that are going on in a typical industrial network. Man, I have so many gadgets and I can't imagine knowing everything that's going on (laughs) on any network, it feels like. Okay, well, that's awesome. All right. Knowing all of this, one of the, I guess, big challenges recently is that we're seeing a lot of industrial hacks, or rather, they're not even hacks. Well, they are. We're seeing a lot of ransomware. And what's happening is attacks on the IT networks are taking out the operational network. So one of these was the the recent meatpacking hack, which we don't we don't have all the details yet, and we probably won't for a while, but it looks like ransomware IT kind of related hack forced them to shut down their their operations. So what is the rationale behind that or how does that happen? How how to how does ransomware get from IT to OT? Well, like I, I explained previously, there is a lot of crosstalk, even if it's well secured between the IT networks and organizations and their operational networks. So there's usually some kind of remote access going on. And if that's compromised, then an adversary can live off the land and use authorized credentials to get into a network or authorized protocols. And that that happens quite frequently. Or with any DMZ, you can have flaws in your DMZ. You can have unexpected protocols traversing it. So there are a lot of ways with these less robust DMZs that are, are between the IT and the operational networks that things can get across. And of course, there's always devices traversing those networks too. And there's sometimes out-of-band connections into the operational environments from things like vendors um, or people bringing laptops in and out. So there is a lot of crosstalk going on there. There's a lot of ways that stuff can get from the, the IT to the OT network. But it doesn't necessarily require a, a compromise of the operational network itself to cause an operational disruption. And that's something we have to also be aware of because if companies can't do things like bill or you know, even properly monitor remotely their industrial facilities, that can cause an operational disruption without actually causing any direct risk to the low-level industrial devices in their own network. So, so there's a multiple potential causes that a ransomware attack could cause a disruption to operations simply by initially compromising the IT network, whether it gets over to the operational network or it just stays in the IT network and it causes some kind of operational impact on that side. Got it. And I feel like a lot of our audience is very familiar with the IT security side. I have lots of, I come from the cloud computing background. I feel like lots of my audience is real familiar with that. But let's talk about when responding to a more industrial incident. So Mm -hmm. let's say somebody brought in a I think of them as tainted USB sticks. You plugged it into like bioreactor or something. There's an actual operational breach. What does that response look like? Because it's very different in the industrial world than in the IT world. It is. It's very different. And you're going to get the pundits out there and the people who are trying to sell you something who are like, uh, oh, uh, you, if you know how to do IT incident response, you can do OT incident response. And I came from the IT incident response world, and I, I'll be the first one to tell you that they are nothing alike and you need to know so much more to do to do OT incident response, because first of all, you need to be able to speak the language of the operators. Otherwise, there's going to be tragic miscommunications because health and safety, again, is the number one concern and then followed by keeping things safely operating production wise in industrial facilities. And if you don't understand that, if you don't speak those priorities, you're going to get kicked out of the facility. You need to to come in with the right personal protective equipment. You need to understand the safety guidelines of the facilities. There can be very risky situations going on. You need to know what happens when various alarms go off in the facility. All those things you need to understand as the incident responder on site. And you need to be able to advise on that risk and health and safety as well. You need to be able to provide proper informed information to the people making decisions about emergency shutdowns things like that, you know, whether people's lives are at risk. So you need to be able to calmly and in an educated way, provide the correct terminology and the correct feedback to the operators about what decisions to make. And also you're dealing with an entirely different set of, of technologies and protocols. So yes, there are familiar PCs and servers in industrial environments. And when an attack traverses those, that's very helpful for us because we can just use our, our typical out of the box forensics tools. But 
a lot of times in industrial environments, you've got to start looking at those lower level devices like PLCs and IIoT devices and forensics on those looks very, very different. You might have to build your own forensic tools. You might have to build your own cables to connect to them. You might have to climb up on a 50 foot ladder to get to them. So incident response in industrial environments, yes, there's similarities. The forensics tools are, are often the same. Your practical models for doing analysis are often the same, but there's these added layers of, of concerns about safety and about how to practically figure out how to do your response and get to the places you need to be and how to talk to people. Those, those are all concerns you don't necessarily have in IT incident response. Got it. So you're, you're running your scans in a hard hat is what it sounds like. You Plus. are maybe on top of a ladder in the rain, things like that. So you've got to be ready for things like that. Okay. And as companies and really professions, I feel like there's going to be much more overlap between the OT and the IT side and the security side. You see this with acquisitions by some of the big tech companies or partnerships with some of the more industrial security firms. So are, are they going to remain separate jobs? Or are you going to broaden your purview? What do you think happens for the security industry going forward as we add more industrial equipment to the internet? Yeah, so people need to be more aware of their industrial environments for sure. And there's big debates. There's big like religious debates right now about whether you should combine your IT and OT security teams, whether they should be separate organizations that work together. I don't care. As long as you have a group of trained, dedicated people who are capable of doing security monitoring and incident response in your OT environment, they can be the same team. They can have, you can have specialists for, for both functions, or you can have two separate teams. That's fine. Whatever gets the job done based on your, your resources, your people, et cetera. But make sure that you have that, that if you have industrial in your environment, make sure you have that specialty there or you're, you know, con con contracting, consulting it out. And where do you think the manufacturing or industrial industry is when it comes to securing their OT side, but also their IT side? It feels like they're lagging a little bit, but maybe that's just because they're a great target. I've certainly learned that different verticals have different investment in cybersecurity in general, and this is a big generalization. Certainly more resourced industries that have more, more money, more people are able to invest more in cybersecurity. So we see, we see some industries that are investing a lot more in people, in training, things like that. And we see some incredibly underfunded industries for various reasons. So some of it is not the fault of the people working at the organization. So you have like the, you, the municipal water utilities. They have next to no money, no people. They've got to do cybersecurity on a shoestring simply because they just don't have any resources. But then there's manufacturing where margins come into play and uh, product margins. So you don't want to spend a lot of extra money on cybersecurity because it's going to it's going to make that margin even more narrow when you sell your product. So there's a lot of different elements that go into why people don't invest a great deal of money or time or people in cybersecurity. I agree. And I think only now are we becoming aware of the external costs of this. So what should we do? As someone who watches this industry, reports on laws, thinks about these kind of costs, is it a regulatory solution? Is it a we have to price this in kind of solution? Like, how do we address this going forward in the best possible way? It has to be a multifactored approach. You know, yes, you can do legislative things to help cybersecurity be, be better across industries. But when the, the entities that you're regulating don't have the resources to do more, then that becomes a problem because they're going to cut corners somewhere else. And really what I need people to be doing from an incident response perspective is I need them to be doing the fundamentals because for, for two reasons. First of all, because a lot of organizations that are being compromised, especially with ransomware, are, are missing fundamentals somewhere right now. They're missing basic perimeter security, access control, things like that. That's the unfortunate truth there. There's a gap somewhere and the adversaries pick the the easiest to exploit target. They, they're just looking for the path of least resistance in a lot of these cases, especially in terms of an industry they think will pay out a lot of money. And the second thing is when I come in to do incident response, the last thing I want to be doing for my sake and for your sake, you know, because incident response is not a cheap service retained or not, is I have to come in and if the fundamentals haven't been done in terms of documentation and asset discovery and mapping the network and understanding policies and how the computers are configured and secured, if that stuff isn't written down and understood when I come in, I have to do it for these organizations. 
And so I'm there delaying incident response and doing this at a, a drastically greater cost than doing it in-house or having it contracted before an incident. I, I have to figure out how the network's laid out to do incident response. So if those things aren't done, when you when you call me in to do incident response because you're in the middle of a crisis and you've been ransomed, if you don't have basic things like asset inventories, IP uh, tables, collection management frameworks, incident response plans, if you don't have those things in place in advance, I'm sitting there trying to build them out on paper on my side when I'm doing incident response before I can begin my effort on the forensics and figuring out what's happened. So I would implore organizations to to do those basics, both in terms of defense in depth and, and securing their environment with the fundamentals, and then also preparing for an incident in advance. All right, be right back. I've got to go map out my network. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for explaining this and giving us such good insight into the industrial IoT security challenges. My pleasure. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. Subscribe.